my conversation partner is Joel Looper, a newly appointed senior fellow of the institute that sponsors this podcast, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. So uh, we like to affectionately refer to our fellows as uh, members of Bonhoeffer's cohort. And uh, my conversation partner today certainly qualifies. Now, you know, we've been in a series here that does two things at once. Um, we introduce our senior fellows so you can kind of get to know the family. Uh, and then we look at the subject matters of their particular uh, expertise, which we will do today with Joel. But let's begin. Uh, Joel, welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer. We're delighted to have you uh, in, in our family. And let's talk about you and your family. Um, give us a little biographical sketch. Well, Rob, thanks for the invitation. Um, this, I don't doubt, will be a really enjoyable conversation. Um, so, uh, about me. I grew up in Clearwater, Michigan, which is just over the Indiana border in a pastor's family. Um, my dad's been a pastor since he was in his, I think, early to mid-twenties. Um, and he's still a pastor in a community church there in Michigan. And um, so the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in this case. I became a theologian. <laughs> and the, uh, I think that the role of a theologian, in my view, is sort of play caddy for the pastor. Um, and that means that, uh, that I can carry the clubs, I provide the theological tools, um, but he or she gets up and hits the ball, so to speak, on Sunday. He or she brings the word. Um, and so I think that my my dad, uh, especially, he would have been one of the primary people that um, inspired me in this direction um, through through his example, um, really. So I, I grew up in Coldwater. Um, <laughs> it's a small town. Um, oh, I thought that was a metaphor. You, you, that's a literal <laughs> town. <laughs> <laughs> that is a literal town. The, uh, oh, I thought you were speaking symbolically, as so many uh, oh, no. theologians do. <laughs> but you're, this is a real place. A real place. When the settlers got there, I think in 1810 or so, um, someone said, Boy, the water's cold here in this lake. What are <laughs> we going to call this town? <laughs> Beautiful. And so they had their name. Yeah. Um, very, uh, very easy. To remember. Um, so I went to Taylor University in Indiana. I was a creative writing major. Um, I thought perhaps I would become a writer. Um, I knew I wanted to, um, to continue to write poetry, which I do for myself uh, for the most part. Um, and uh, when, I, when I got out of Taylor, I became a journalist for a year. Little did I know that the journalism uh, industry is at a similar place to where academia is currently. 
that is going down the tubes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was very quickly laid off from that job. But this was, I think, providential in some ways. I ended up um, being drawn in, in a really um, sort of inexorable way toward further study, toward seminary. One of the influences, probably the, the primary literary influence that drew me really inexorably toward further study and toward seminary was Dallas Willard. Um, Dallas Willard is a Southern Baptist. Um, and, you know, I am most certainly not a Southern Baptist. Uh, and, you know, I've only even been inside a Southern Baptist church once in my life, despite being a transplanted Texan. Um, but his evangelical sensibilities um, were important to me. Um, and his, um, how should I put this? His, um, his heart, um, it's a, a, an emotional or maybe a strange way to put it. Um, but his, uh, deep love of of Christ and his intellect, um, his careful um, thought about the spiritual disciplines was like un was unlike anything I'd ever encountered before. Um, so his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and then Renovation of the Heart, uh, at that point in my life. Um, you know, were, were a huge part of what drew me to Gordon-Conwell in Massachusetts um, Seminary there. Um, Venerable so, uh, evangelical institution. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it's um, I, I, one of the, the few uh, northern evangelical seminaries that, that seem to be going strong today. Um still in an era where seminaries are suffering. Um, so I, I got to Gordon Conwell in 2006 and I um, began an MA in theology. I did not think that doing an MDiv was the right move for me because I didn't feel like I was called to be a pastor. I didn't feel like I, I should be hitting the ball on Sunday myself, or at least not yet. Um, so um, I did an MA in, in theology, and but what really captured my attention was the New Testament. Um, I took a couple of very uh, extraordinarily rigorous exegesis courses with Scott Hafeman, um, who's now, I believe, at St. Andrews. Um, on Second Peter and Jude, and one on Mark, um, and these really captured my imagination. Um, I had a professor, um, Peter Anders, who taught me Karl Barth's theology, and I remember him telling me we were standing out in the parking lot uh, outside one of the buildings there, and. We're talking about PhD work. And he said, Joel, if you don't do a PhD now, you'll never do one. 
And I, I thought to myself, well, I guess I'll never do one then. <laughs> that was, that would have been 2009 um, at the uh, uh, beginning of the, the downturn, you know, the, which turned into the Great Recession. And so um, I, could, I couldn't shake um, the desire for further study in, in writing. Um, I, I moved to Texas. I, uh, took a job teaching at a classical school, which I, I love, um, I still love that institution. I, um, just for those who may not be familiar with classical school, when you say it, yes, I think most, most of our listeners would be, but just in case, uh, so we don't leave anybody out, how would you define that? It is a particular species of, of, of school. It is. And when I first started teaching there, I didn't know what classical education was either. Um, classical education, it can come in a number of forms, but the main thesis behind, um, you know, that it's driving these schools is that, uh, introducing students, um, sort of inducting students, into the conversations that have come before, primarily in Western civilization, enables them to continue um, the you know today's conversations, the conversations that we need to have today. Now, I think there are two two types of classical schools. One, like Live Oak that I taught at, um, the critique of Western education is. Um, you know, in, in our, our history is part of, um, is part of the education. It's allowed and even encouraged at times, um, especially by teachers, um, and, you know, students, um, you know, haltingly learn, um, how and when that might be appropriate, um, especially, um, since this is a Christian school in light of the gospel, there are other classical schools that um, I think are less willing to critique our Western past and and the um, ways that our American heritage is interpreted um, or has been interpreted. So that's classical education. Um, and I really, I drunk the Kool-Aid um, as long as, you know, it's the, the first type. Um, I, I thought this was exceedingly valuable for students. Um, and so I loved my time there. And yet I, I kept being drawn toward further study, um, even though I thought, you know what, the market for, uh, you know, for university faculty is non-existent nowadays. Um, eventually, I, I pulled the trigger and I applied to some programs. Um, and the one that, uh, that I ended up being drawn to was the University of Aberdeen. I studied Bonhoeffer under Phil Ziegler, um, who uh, is the author of a number of papers on Bonhoeffer, um, and, uh, yeah, a number of, uh, really great books. The, um, being drawn to Bonhoeffer though, didn't happen at Aberdeen. I met Barry Harvey, 
who is a, an eminent Bonhoeffer scholar around Baylor in, in Waco, Texas, where I now live. And Barry, um, he's the author of Taking Hold of the Real. Um, that's a book on Bonhoeffer that uh, I think your listeners would do well to, to grab, uh, to purchase. We'll include, uh, we'll include that in the list of supportive uh, resources for this Absolutely. podcast episode, folks. So take a look around. You'll see links to that. You all should read it. It's, it's, very, it's very good. It's an important book. And um, I read much, much of Bonhoeffer's work with Harvey over the, over the years, starting in about 2011. And, um, and other, you know, a handful of other books. And eventually, a thesis came to mind, you know, a, a book project. And that was really what I couldn't shake. Um, that was really why I did the PhD. And uh, that project turned into Bonhoeffer's America, uh, which is the book that I wrote that's uh, set to appear in a couple weeks. Yeah, and let me just say, there are few authors I have met in my career who could say, well, I had this idea for a book, so <laughs> I did a PhD first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite an achievement, Joel Lupert. Uh, and, uh, it's not and, the way it's normally done. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. And that shows a certain uh, formidable commitment <laughs> to the task. Uh, because, or a certain insanity, perhaps. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, but I'm glad you had that moment of insanity because what you have produced in this book that uh, everyone should be looking forward to coming out shortly if you're listening to this beyond say august of 21 it's already out and and uh and get a hold of it and we're going to talk about it in depth in a moment but first can you talk a little bit more about your phd work because those who sure. have done a phd i chickened out i ended up doing a demon I, I wasn't i didn't have what you have so uh, i couldn't do it couldn't pull it off it is exacting demanding uh it 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 taxes you in a unique way but can you can you talk to us a little bit about your work the research the writing uh what it was yeah. and why you undertook it beyond the book yeah Whew. um well the way i did a phd is <laughs> It's something I would recommend to none of your listeners. <laughs> I, okay, I continue we'll take note to, of that. So please do note that, um, what I'm about to say. I, um, I began my PhD, um, you know, or I applied to programs thinking I would leave Waco. Well, I got married um, and I got married uh, to a native Wacoan who um, was in the process of becoming an immigration attorney. She just graduated from, from law school. Um, and in fact, I think she's been on this podcast, too. Am I right about that? 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, the two of you are just two of our top communicators here. So, and bravo oh, to her <laughs> uh, for, for uh, undertaking that critical role in the time in which we're living, but also to you for your your pick for a life partner quite a match <laughs> yes i'm lucky she uh so she, you know she was really deep in it um during the trump years she uh um you know started an office in waco started a, a branch of their law firm it's called american gateways and so these are you know m- many of the folks that she's serving are trafficking victims victims of abuse by American citizen spouses, um, you know, important work. So we were, we were pretty well ensconced here. So I was only in Aberdeen for, you know, during my second semester, I spent the rest of the, the time in Waco across the ocean until I defended. The only way I was able to do this um, was that I had a, a supervisor, um, that is Phil, my, my doctor father, as they say, um, who is well organized, um, who is a very good reader, very perceptive reader and is really encouraging. Um, I think there are a few people who could have shepherded this dissertation through, um, other than Phil. I also had Barry Harvey here in Waco uh, to ask questions of and, and some other folks. And I would go to Baylor's library and use their resources. Um, so I, I was in a really unique situation where this was even conceivable. Nonetheless, I didn't have a cohort um, like most PhD students do. You really need your cohort to get through the the long hours um, when you're deep in some arcane subject that 99% of the world couldn't care about, you know, couldn't care less about. And you need those other people who are, you know, uh, neck deep in some other arcane subject. And they see why their research matters to the world. And you see why your research matters. Um, and so you can encourage each other through, you know, through those times, through the, the difficult bumps in research and so forth, when you get stuck on a problem and you think you'll, you'll never get free and this, uh, this book or this, uh, this dissertation will never get finished. Um, those folks help you. And in most situations, um, they are, you know, those folks are really important. I, I went without that. Um, and I was lucky that I had uh, the people around me, uh, you know, again, Phil, Barry, uh, and others to help me get to the finish line. But if you, uh, if you listeners are, are thinking about doing a PhD remotely, even in these times when, you know, Zoom and, uh, you know, such education is possible, I would I would strongly recommend you you try to get there in person wherever it is. It's a, it's a tough step. 
And, you know, if, if you decide uh, you're going to marry uh, someone in Waco, well, you got the loopers there. Uh, That's right. <laughs> help you out. Uh, and by the way, I was trying to think when your wife, Annalie, was on, I don't, I'm not sure we did this podcast, but she, I, I believe she was part of the immigration uh, focus we did in our series uh, on uh, You Welcomed Me, uh, the Christian ah. disposition towards the stranger, uh, and was in conversation with one of our other senior fellows, also our pro bono counsel here, Scott Gillum, uh, who focused on on that work uh, with immigration. But anyway, we're going to put that in the resources as well. Since you mentioned your wife, uh, and and she has so much to contribute uh, in the overall conversation, we're going to put that link. So folks, watch for that link, and you'll meet the other half, the other, the other uh, half of the Looper uh, partnership here. So you complete your PhD successfully. Uh, when were you awarded the degree? I, I can't recall. <coughs> Excuse me. In 2019. 19, yeah, because I remember congratulating you. We, we knew each other at that, at that point. We did. Yeah, we were already in conversation. Uh, so you, you obtain your doctorate, but you're not finished because you're about to go uh, and convert that, or at least part of it, um, into the energy that will drive the book. And I think this is terribly important because, Joel, for all the volumes I have on my shelves here in my study where I record these conversations, uh, the, the volumes on Bonhoeffer, none of them treat in any depth his American experience. I mean, certain elements of it. New York, Union Theological Seminary, Harlem, Abyssinian Baptist Church, but almost isolated from the much larger American experience and all the implications right. of that. So, and you do that for the first time. This I consider this a breakthrough examination of Bonhoeffer. So, can you tell us just about your approach to the subject? You know, the what, why, how, and then uh, especially the why. But and then take us into the content of the book. Yes, um, certainly. I I should at least mention that there is one other book length treatment out there of part of Bonhoeffer's uh, year, first year, and then um, uh, return to the U.S. in '39. And that's Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus by Reggie Williams. So I was thinking of it myself. I was thinking of it myself. Good good point. Say on. If you're interested in in the Harlem experience, that's a book to to get. Um, So I I came to this research at a at a very different angle than than Reggie came to his. Um, I read, and I I would imagine. Uh, Rob, that you've been equally struck by this essay, um, Bonhoeffer's 1939 essay, Protestantism Without Reformation. Yes. Um, this this piece, uh, when the Gestapo came to get Bonhoeffer, was left in his 
desk drawer. Um, so um, whether he was working on it then or not, you know, I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it. Um, but this is um, his primary statement on America. And coupled with letters um, and other notes from the 1930-31 trip to Union Seminary in New York, a, a picture starts to come into, into focus about what Bonhoeffer thought, uh, you know, what Bonhoeffer saw in America, which was the title of the original title of this book, was the title of the dissertation. And what he saw was not encouraging. <laughs> he, um, he said, uh, he wrote home to one friend, that there's no theology here. Um, he uh, just excoriated the, uh, the students at Union. Um, you know, he, he thought these people, uh, you know, just, uh, it, you know, in, in many and various ways, whether intellectually or um, one might say uh, Christianly, um, you know, as far as their formation, were not what one would want, uh, you know, when it comes to the pastorate. And so there are, there are a number of, of quotes um, that I could bring out here. He says at one point, this is one that I tend to hang my hat on. In New York, I have heard every, uh, nearly everything preached, and, and note this isn't an exact quote. Um, I've heard nearly everything preached, but one thing that I haven't heard is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. That's in a letter that he wrote home. Um, and much of this stuff uh, comes out of, a, of out of his end-of-year report from that year, which, again, there's very little, uh, precious little that is encouraging. Um, you know, um, so this, this was really surprising to me when I first read Protestantism and that Reformation and started working through this material. Um, why exactly was he so disheartened? Um, and in the end, I think, um, one, uh, Bonhoeffer was deeply influenced by Karl Barth's uh, theology and the centrality of the preaching of the gospel, um, the centrality of the word. Um, Christ preached for everything that Christians do. And he didn't see that in America. And, and sort of secondly, I guess, you know, a point that goes along with the first, um, the social gospel, which was the regnant theology in America at the time, replaced that preaching and the gospel politics that are supposed to come from it with a pragmatic um, Americanist way of doing things, of being religious, I might say. So, you know, this continues to stun me, you know, and I'm still working out the implications myself. Um, 
But that that is uh, that, that was the first impression of what Bonhoeffer. Uh, that was that was his first impression of New York. And in terms of that, um, of course, at the time, Bonhoeffer is visiting some of the leading light churches of the time. I mean, uh, you know, some of the more fashionable churches, if you will, uh, certainly <laughs> the more successful, the larger, the more popular and they would have been, now, here's where I'm going to betray my ignorance. I should know the answer to this, and I don't. Um, was there a particular denominational stream that he seemed attracted to, or was he kind of trying out everything in that time, as far as, you know, what sanctuaries he was sitting in and not hearing the gospel? <laughs> well, uh, he went to a good number of churches in New York. Um, and of course he, uh, he did end up in Harlem. And I think, I think it's worth saying that, um, he did hear the gospel there at Abyssinian Baptist Church. And he was, um, you know, really struck by this clearly. Um, but no, he didn't, he didn't stay with any particular denomination. He didn't stick with his, uh, his Lutheran uh, heritage. He seemed interested in, in trying out all kinds of different things. In 1939, he did finally hear what he called a, um, an, you know, a, a biblical sermon, something that you know, he seemed quite surprised by, <laughs> quite surprised to find in New York, and that was at a Presbyterian church. Um, but I think, I think Bonhoeffer's interest in coming to America was partly to take it all in and to, to, to take in the whole setting that was before him. Um, so I, I think he never planned to visit just Lutheran churches. He seems to have visited a couple, um, but even those, uh, those Lutheran churches, as, as he says, were under the American spell. Um, no. Now, of course, there is his New York experience visiting those white, middle, upper middle class, even upper class, I guess, churches. I mean, certainly Riverside at the time was kind of the That's apex right. uh, of the social cultural church of that period. Uh, and then he has the experience at Abyssinian Baptist in Harlem, quintessential black church. But there's another aspect to his American experience, uh, and that is uh, the road trip. Do you treat the road trip? I don't in spend a lot of time. I don't spend a lot of time on the road trip, no. Um, and that's partly because um, I think, uh, by the way, he, one little uh, addendum here, he, he put um, 4,000 miles by my count on a car that he borrowed from some friends that he made in, in America. <laughs> Drove all the way down uh, to, to Mexico City and, and actually, you know, didn't bring the car back. It broke down. <laughs> isn't, isn't that amazing? 
Yeah, um, well, you can understand <laughs> why. In those days, before synthetic oils and efficient oh. engines, you can only imagine how punishing that was on, on Boy, a right. uh, car like that. <laughs> so, he, yeah, the road trip is fascinating. Um, and there are other resources. I, I would point folks toward Charles Marsh's biography, Strange Glory. Uh, there has a has a nice treatment of the road trip, um, but I decided to go against. Uh, I decided to not spend time on the road trip. One because Marsh has already done such a good job of uh, of outlining it for us, but also because I think there's been an overemphasis on among Bonhoeffer scholars on the influence of his friends, of Frank Fisher, um, who brought him to Abyssinia, um, and of Edwin Suits, um, and who was a Swiss fellow, and, um, and Jean Lasserre, the Frenchman who converted Bonhoeffer, at least for a time, to a form of theological pacifism. And then Paul Lehman, who became a, a well-known American theologian. The, the influence of, of those four has been really strongly emphasized, and I'm just, I just don't see it. I, I don't know that their influence on Bonhoeffer is quite um, as important, or it's not the main theme at any rate of the American years. The main theme is his utter and complete opposition um, really disgust might not be too strong a word to the, the theology that he sees in, um, in the Ed Union and in other places. Reinhold Niebuhr's theology. It, you know, so many Bonhoeffer commentators and others have, have seen the responsibility that, that Bonhoeffer um, speaks of in ethics and think that's got to be the same responsibility that Niebuhr wanted from citizens and it's they're they're very different um we have uh, you know bonhoeffer and and niebuhr um begin from very different um theological starting places the community that niebuhr is concerned about in the end is the united states of america and then the so-called used to be called the beloved community. And now um, the, that's really more or less the international community. Bonhoeffer was concerned with the church and the church's um, living out of the gospel politically would, um, would show the world, would, would be a light to the world and, you know, show the world who Christ is. And, so those, those starting places um, that so separated Bonhoeffer and Niebuhr led to a, a really a chasm between them that opens up when you read volume 10 of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works. And that chasm was there uh, between Bonhoeffer and Harry Ward, the uh, a very interesting fellow uh, who taught at Union, who was a, a founder of the ACLU, a... Uh, communist. Um, he gave, believe me, he gave the union administration fits <laughs> uh, with, his, uh, with his political statements. 
and, and others. Um, that, that chasm was there between Bonhoeffer and every member of the union faculty. Yeah, he wouldn't be the most popular student there, uh, <laughs> or scholar uh, there for sure. Um, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, Joel, uh, one of the things we like to do through the Institute is help people to get to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, both on a personal level uh, as well as on a theoretical level. Um, you know, what made him tick? Uh, what was his approach, uh, as you indicate now, to the church, which I've always argued was his central concern uh, throughout his career? Um, and uh, and throughout the struggle, and then getting to know him theologically, the theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, what do you hope to leave folks with uh, in in your work, both uh, in your scholarly work and in the book you've written? What do you want people to know in the end? about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I want people to know that the church that Bonhoeffer hoped to form in Germany um, after the war and the church that he would have hoped for in America as well isn't the one we have today. Mm. Um. Our, our nationalist, you know, the, the nationalism that's so, um, that so dominates the conversation right now, evangelicalism, the uh, sort of Mr. Rogers style do-goodism that dominates liberal churches, that's, that's not what Bonhoeffer hoped for. Bonhoeffer hoped for a, um, a word-oriented, uh, spirit-led politics um, that show the world who Christ is through our actions and not just through our words. Um, and, and that's political, you know? Um, and that would, that would be, if, if we even saw a... Um, a grain of that today, it would change our country. Um, it, it would change everything. Um, but I, I think uh, Bonhoeffer was right. Um, I think that we didn't have it then, um, or at least it was very, it was vanishingly rare. And I'm afraid that in particular, um, in evangelicalism, we lack it today too. Do you see Bonhoeffer as generally an optimist about the church or a pessimist? Or is it possible to even categorize him as either? Well, um, after the war, um, I suppose this was the war was still happening. He's, he's writing. Uh, uh, what I'm about to reference, he, he writes in a baptismal meditation um, 
or his godson, Eberhard Betka's son. Um, and in that meditation, he says that the words of the church, um, you know, because of disobedience, right, um, and because of unbelief, have lost their power. Um, and so we will need new words. And, and all, that, all that can be done um, right now for the world by the church is prayer and righteous action. You know, externally, that's, that's all we can really do. Um, so I think, um, in the end, Bonhoeffer was an optimist about God. <laughs> he, he, was, he was an optimist about uh, the word, um, you know, to uh, sort of channel Luther here, making a way for itself. The word's going to come. The gospel is going to be preached. Um, our stupidity, our uh, errors can't stop it. Um, and we've got a lot of all that. I, I've got a lot of all that. <laughs> um, but so, um, but though Bonhoeffer was an optimist about God, I don't know that he was an optimist about the church. He'd seen, um, he'd seen too much uh, in the confessing church among the German Christians, you know, too much unfaithfulness. But he did know that the church was was where God acts. That's, that's where the gospel is preached. Um, and so I think he might have responded, it's the only game in town. Hmm. Well, well put. Uh, it's been a delight. I, I could go on, of course, and test our listening audience's patience forever because we could have another hour of conversation oh, <laughs> if you were game for it but we'll leave it here and encourage folks to read the rest of the conversation in uh, your good work and I'm going to ask you in a minute where it's best to locate you to find you but first I'll just mention uh, I got an early manuscript uh, of what was then uh, what Bonhoeffer saw in America, but I think your current title, the, the title that it's coming out under is Bonhoeffer's America, A Land Without right. Reformation, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let me get that right, because when I'm in conversation with folks, I, I refer to the old working title. Uh, but the, the title under which uh, Joel's work has been published is Bonhoeffer's America, that's 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 provocative enough. I, I like that. Bonhoeffer's America, a land without reformation, available through Amazon. If you buy through Amazon, please make sure it's through smile.amazon.com and name the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute as your designated charity. And you'll not only help yourself with a great resource, help the legacy uh, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, help Joel and his family, but you'll also help us at the Institute. So everybody wins when you buy through smile.amazon.com or wherever you buy your books. Uh, you will really enjoy this rich examination of Bonhoeffer's experience. 
uh, in America and how it affected him. Uh, so, um, Joel, uh, this isn't your only publication. You're, you're prolific. Where can folks find you if they want to know Joel Looper? Sure. Um, I write frequently on politics for uh, Arc Digital. You can find them. They've just moved to Substack. They are an up-and-coming indie publication. I love what those guys are doing, and I think you will, too. I write for um, the Australian Broadcasting Company um, frequently enough. You can find my work in Sojourners, um, LA Review of Books, uh, many different publications around it. Um, okay. So. Well, find Joel. Uh, you will be glad oh. you did. Uh, and let's all read Bonhoeffer's America. A Land Without Reformation. Let's read it together, and then let's have a future discussion on it. Joel, maybe you'll join us for one of those discussions. Otherwise, we will talk about you and your work behind your back, and it will all be <laughs> for the good. So I thank you yes. for spending the time with me, with the rest of our friends uh, out there in the, um, in the uh, ether waves. And I look forward to your continued presence among our cohort of senior fellows at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. We are literally grateful to God for you and for your contribution to the rich Bonhoeffer legacy. Thanks, Rob. This was enjoyable. <laughs>